Hello, I'm Abram Banning. And I'm Joanne Diaz. And this is Poetry for All. In this podcast, we read a poem, discuss it, learn from it, and then read it one more time. And today, we're so honored to have Christian Wyman as our guest. Christian Wyman is the Clement Mule Professor of Communication Arts at Yale Divinity School, the former editor of Poetry Magazine, and the author, editor, and translator of multiple books. Today, we're going to talk about his poem, I Don't Want to Be a Spice Store, from his latest book of poetry, Survival is a Style. Christian Wyman, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Would you be willing to get us started by just reading this poem for us? Sure. This is I Don't Want to Be a Spice Store. I don't want to be a spice store. I don't want to carry handcrafted Marseille soap or Sampa and yak butter or 9,000 varieties of wine. Half the shops here don't open till noon and even the bookstores brined in charm. I want to be the one store that's open all night and has nothing but necessities. Something to get a fire going and something to put one out. A place where things stay frozen and a place where they are sweet. I want to hold within myself the possibility of plugging one's ears and easing one's eyes. Super glue for ruptures that are, one would have thought, irreparable. A whole bevy of non-toxic solutions for everyday disasters. I want to wait, brightly lit, and with the patience I never had as a child, for my father to find me open on Christmas morning in his last-ditch lone wolf drive for gifts. Light-of-the-world pinlight, bobblehead compass, fuzzy dice. I want to hum just a little with my own emptiness at 4 a.m., to have little bells above my door, to have a door. Mm, that is so good. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so normally we would dive right into this poem and begin to see how it's working. But before we do that today, I want to talk just a little bit about the book in which this poem is located, Survival is a Style. I think sometimes we forget that poets do, in fact, write books, not just poems. And many of our listeners might have encountered poems primarily in isolation, maybe in an anthology or something, or a literary magazine. But poems are not just standalone things. So I wonder if you could get us started by just thinking through a little bit with us how you structured this book. Uh, yeah, I have a couple of answers to that. I, I um, Before this book was out, I was talking to the poet Tracy K. Smith, and and I said something like, she was talking about the construction of a book, and I said, you know, I always just open a book of poems in the middle and just read randomly. Mm-hmm. And she was appalled. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, um, um, because she constructs her so carefully and expects them to be read as a completed thing. And I was much more conscious I, of, with this book than I was with some of the others of making it that completed thing because it seemed to have an organic necessity to it. And it, it does move from a kind of cry at the beginning of lack and destitution and kind of fearfulness to a kind of fulfillment at the end, which is still fraught, but uh, it, it does move to a kind of fulfillment. So I was aware that the book was had done that, not until I'd written it, but I but uh, I did become aware of it. And then 
So I arranged it in that way. My wife is always a real help to me because she sees these things more clearly than than I do. And she's arranged my other books, actually. Mm. So she's a big help with, with was a big help with this one, too. How do you think about the various parts of, of the book? So even just thinking about why there is a part one, a part two, part three is interesting because it's a very long, single poem. And then part four comes back to a series of discrete poems. So when you were thinking about this particular arrangement, what made a part a part? Most of the things in part one and four are fairly personal, particularly part one. Part two, they're more public. And then three is a very an extended meditation that fuses those two things. It, it fuses my own life and, and my life with my father with theological thinking, reflections. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that struck me about reading the book cover to cover, which, by the way, I'd recommend to readers to do, books of poetry can often be read cover to cover in a sitting or in an afternoon, and uh, and it changes the way these poems appear. So, for example, the father we have in this poem for today reappears uh, in that long extended meditation in, in part three. And it's not necessarily the same father because speaker, we know poetic speakers can change from poem to poem, but you get the feeling that these are the same father. Uh, the same one. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think it's a mystery here. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, and so and so you actually begin to learn more about the father after having encountered him here at the end. This is the last poem of part one. And, and there are other ways as well in which themes that go all the way through the book begin to come out in this poem. So one of the themes that struck me was um, there's several poems here about being basically reduced to the bare necessities. There's poems about aging and cancer and and other ways in which people are being stripped down to their bare essentials. But then it feels like each poem, when it gets to that point, is asking, well, but what are the bare essentials? What are the bare necessities once everything else has been pulled away? And there's a lot of different answers to that question. Yeah, that's definitely the case in a lot of these poems. And this one was an attempt to playfully confront that, I thought. Yeah. Uh, a, a poem can really swerve on you. Robert Frost has that famous line, no surprise for the writer, no surprise for the reader. Mm -hmm. If it doesn't somehow open up for you, take you someplace where you weren't expecting, then it's not going to do that for a reader either. And I was writing a playful little poem about being frustrated with the kind of fancy stores that I had encountered and not wanting that, wanting a, you know, wanting a different kind of life. And, mm -hmm. and, uh, and the poem swerved from that to take in my father, who I had no thought of whatsoever when I was mm -hmm. starting this poem. And in fact, my father did used to never get gifts until the day of an occasion. So if it was Christmas, you were he was reduced to getting it at the truck stop and mm. so our gifts from him would be you know fuzzy dice and things like that <laughs> that is that is so interesting and such a helpful way to get into the particulars of this poem because that passage that you're describing I want to wait brightly lit and with the patience I never had as a child for my father to find me open on Christmas morning in his last ditch, lone wolf drive for gifts, light of the world, pen light, bobblehead compass, fuzzy dice, takes up an interesting space right there toward the end of the poem. And it's a poem that starts, and you mentioned the lightness with which it begins. There's definitely a wit to it. Uh, the poem begins with what the poetic speaker doesn't want to be. And I, I love that strategy because 
um, it the poem uh, the poetic speaker doesn't want to be luxurious, uh, expensive, unnecessary, right? So I wonder if you could talk about that structure, which I love so much. Uh, yeah, I guess it does begin in a kind of gesture of refusal. It's interesting. I I um it might be a, a tick or a habit that I I tend to come at things by refusing them first, come in a, in a sidelong way and. God is no small part of that. <laughs> uh, I'm sure that was part of it. My, my daughter, she was reading, I have two 11-year-old daughters, and, and she read this poem one day, and she looked up and she says, you know, Dad, I think I do want to be a spice store. <laughs> That's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> I mean, let's face it, the handcrafted Marseille soap is very appealing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Well, you know, what's interesting to me, so in the epilogue of this book, you say, love's the sacred name for loneliness. And I feel like there is an echo of that in this poem itself, because so much of what the poem is about is a kind of love that is a kind of loneliness or a waiting or a patience or just an openness to whatever might enter. I love that connection. Yeah, love's the sacred name for loneliness, because I mean, this just, I, I do have a anger at my father. And the long poem talks about some of the things that he did, and I've written about it elsewhere. I mean, he was a rough guy and, and did some things that they, they, did, they did a lot of damage to, to our family and beyond. But when you were right in front of him, he could uh, be filled with love. Mm-hmm. And, and this poem, I, I, part of what surprised me is that... Uh, I turned something that I was resentful about that he really never saw his kids at all. And he would just sort of have these throwaway gifts. And, and it, I discovered the love that was in them. Um, even the details, the light of the world pin light. I mean, that's like a throwaway thing, but it's the light of the world. Right. <laughs> a bobblehead compass is ridiculous, but it's a compass. It gives you direction. And mm. Fuzzy dice is some element of chance that is, you know, made possible and yeah. fun. And so those, yeah, I think that emptiness does become, uh, come to a kind of fruition or pre- uh, presence mm. there. And-, and there is a sense, I mean, and this is why the point of view of the poem is so wonderful, because it's spoken from the point of view of a mature adult, right, who can look back on the lack of patience in childhood And that suggests to me that, yes, in the past, the child may have not had patience for the father uh, scurrying to get these gifts, but perhaps something has shifted in the adult writing the poem. Yeah, and I also think that, you know, we get older and you're able to perceive love that gets forced into forms that you couldn't perceive in a long time. I think of that poem by Robert Hayton, Those Winter Sundays, Mm. where he wakes up and hears his father driving out the cold and the fires crackling and and uh but he says he's fearing the chronic angers of that house so we know it's a rough place but then at the end he says what did i know what did i know of love's austere and lonely offices mm-hmm. and so he's recognizing in the past that there was a kind of love in what seemed merely hard at the time mm-hmm. yeah well, and one of the things I notice happening in the poem too, when when we come to that line, has nothing but necessities. There's a kind of turn there because, on the one hand, that could be the end of the poem. I want to be a store that has nothing but necessities. But then the poem goes on to describe what those necessities would be. And what's interesting is at first we begin with things that really do seem elemental and fundamental, like fire, fire going on or fire going out, and things that stay frozen, like 
really basic needs. But then the next line says, and a place where they are sweet. And we begin to turn like, maybe necessities are not just the hard things. Maybe necessities are the little bells above the door too. Yeah, that's a good way of putting that. And also I think it, the poem is about a consciousness that, and here I would say a speaker because I'm not, I wasn't conscious of it being me, but you know, it is needing to have things in their place, you know, resisting the kind of chaos. And I grew up amid a lot of chaos. And so I want to be a place where everything is in its place. Mm-hmm. And yet to have a door still amidst all of that, mm-hmm. where chaos can come in and form my father, I guess. <laughs> but also, I, I, I wonder if you could say a little bit more about those final three lines. I love them. I love the way the poem ends because it just, it rings for me uh, long after I've put the poem away. I want to hum just a little with my own emptiness at 4 a.m. To have little bells above my door. To have a door. I, I, every time I get to that final sentence, I just am stunned. It's so, it's, um, so arresting. Could you just talk about how you landed on those final images? Well, I can't explain the last one because I wrote that and I, it shocked me to my core. Mm. Uh, I didn't, I mean, I had no, I mean, I realized the poem was suddenly over, but uh, like I say, I did not have any expectation that that was coming. Mm-hmm. Um, so the last line was in fact the last line and the poem was absolutely done after that. Um, but I think there's some sort of religious dispensation in that line. I want to hum just a little with my own emptiness at 4 a.m., it's a kind of negative state that's it's volatile, I guess. It's a volatile emptiness. You know, it's 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 permeable. Hmm. Uh, it's not simply the kind of loneliness that defeats us. You know, there, I feel like the I wants in this poem are each related in a way to those dispositions because there are four I want tos in the poem. And if you think about stacking those up, they become a kind of interesting repetition in their own right. So I want to be is the first. I want to hold is the second. I want to wait is the third. And then I want to hum. And the hum is the surprising one. And I think that's part of the surprise of the ending. That's really interesting to me. I didn't notice that at all. And then if you think of the ending, that what's fallen away is the I, the I and the, and the desire. I want It's just to have a door is all that's left. Yeah ego has been erased in a way or transmuted in some way. I, that's, I mean, I, you're, you're showing me things in this poem that I wasn't aware of. You know, even as I heard Abram observing that about your sentences, uh, for me, I start to wonder, of course, I, I see the emotional uh, and personal elements of the poem as you describe it, but I wonder if this is almost a kind of ars poetica, meaning Yes, the poetic speaker is is trying to envision uh, how he could be this extended metaphor of a different kind of store, not a spice store, but something that's necessary, convenient, open, accessible. But I wonder if, it, in as we're talking about it, I kind of feel like it could be a way of talking about a, a certain kind of writing. Do you, do you feel that way at all? Is that totally a reach? No, I, I think that's absolutely true. I don't know if I'd thought about it, but I've certainly been aware i was aware in the writing of this book of wanting to extend my range to write to write that i'm so driven by the sound of poems and which i love i love the sound of poems but it can become a kind of enclosure 
because it doesn't allow other kinds of speech into the poem. Mm. And I was really aware in this book of wanting a wide range of tones and not wanting the poems to sound perfect at all, you know, wanting them to be able to include different things. So I, I do think that's dead on to read it that way. Well, I wonder with, with everything that we have covered already and, and for our listeners to be able to hear these things as they happen, would you be willing to read the poem again? Sure. I don't want to be a spice store. I don't want to be a spice store. I don't want to carry handcrafted Marseille soap or Sampa and yak butter or 9,000 varieties of wine. Half the shops here don't open till noon, and even the bookstores brined in charm. I want to be the one store that's open all night and has nothing but necessities. Something to get a fire going and something to put one out. A place where things stay frozen and a place where they are sweet. I want to hold within myself the possibility of plugging one's ears and easing one's eyes. Super glue for ruptures that are, one would have thought, irreparable. A whole bevy of non-toxic solutions for everyday disasters. I want to wait brightly lit and with the patience I never had as a child for my father to find me open on Christmas morning in his last-ditch lone wolf drive for gifts. Light of the world pin light, bobblehead compass, fuzzy dice. I want to hum just a little with my own emptiness at 4 a.m., to have little bells above my door, to have a door. What a remarkable poem. Mm. Thank you so much for reading it one more time. Yes. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Thank you. For our listeners, we hope you'll remember to subscribe to the Poetry for All podcast via Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, or any other provider. And please leave us a review and let us know how we're doing. You can always follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you, Christian Wyman, for being here with us today. Thank you both for having me. It was a pleasure.